I'm Reba Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. Just a content note that this episode contains references to several specific kinds of interpersonal trauma, nothing at all detailed. But if you're expressly not in the mood to think about the more sordid and seamy side of human experience, you may want to wait on this one. You know, it's funny, when I sat down to start writing for this episode, which is inspired by my conversation last time with Dr. K. Hickson about moral injury among therapists, this specific anecdote came to mind. The first time I can remember experiencing a very acute and obvious instance of moral injury as a clinician, the very first week of my on-the-job training in my crisis job. I remember it really, really well. Something I haven't talked about on here yet is that I have a creative writing background, fiction writing. That was my thing that I was going to do before I pivoted in my late 20s back to what for me is the family business of being a therapist. So I love well-articulated imagery. I love evocative description. I know deep down the truth of what one of my creative writing professors told us, that the more specific the images, the more universal the human experience that is evoked by them. That's true. So I could do that with the anecdote that I'm referring to, that first experience I had of acute moral injury in this job. I could paint that incredibly detailed picture for you. I could describe that scene for you and make you feel like you had been there to see it yourself, but I'm not going to. First, because this story, what I witnessed was the autonomy and dignity of a client being violated in a very upsetting way, and it doesn't feel like my story to share with the world. And second, because I don't want to, you know, gratuitously spread the vicarious trauma around by painting this disturbing picture and transmitting it into your head via this podcast. So I'm going to hold back the memory of this experience for myself and the other human beings who were in that room witnessing and participating in the scenario that I'm not going to describe here. And that leads me back around to this idea of therapists as secret keepers. That first layer of secret keeping seems so easy, right? So simple. Confidentiality. I bet you could recite the limits of confidentiality right now by heart. You probably do that regularly in your intake sessions. Everything else goes in the vault. But in these circumstances, the vault isn't a what, it's a who, it's us. We often talk about confidentiality from the client's perspective, the absolutely crucial nature of it, the ethical dilemmas that come up when we have to breach it for whatever reason, how the client's understanding of confidentiality impacts the therapeutic process and so forth all very important things. But I think we rarely talk about what confidentiality means for therapists beyond a set of rules or ethical puzzles to navigate. What does it really mean for us to be the bearers of all this confidential information about human beings? In my practice, I do a lot of trauma processing work that involves written and transcribed narratives. So I've begun over the years to accumulate this private, confidential library of exactingly detailed stories of events that comprise some of the most painful experiences of people's lives. On perhaps the more extreme or striking end of the spectrum, there are stories of homicides, suicides, kidnappings, 
animal abuse, sadistic treatment from caregivers, hair-raising domestic violence incidents, a cross-section of sexual trauma that ranges from the grisly to the merely repulsive. And then there are the more quotidian stories, more ordinary and perhaps more accessible to imagine. A parent whose primary lifelong emotional stance towards their child was deep antipathy and disgust, a long and lonely childhood defined by bullying and ostracism from peers, a moment of callous disregard from a doctor that altered the trajectory of a life. I read back over these narratives sometimes as I'm working on improving and refining my approach to trauma processing. And as I sift through the stories looking for whatever particular therapeutic features I'm focusing on right then, I still can't help but notice and be affected by the content. Reading through these stories has this feel of walking down an alley and looking in the open back doors of all the houses, seeing what's really going on in there. These aren't the front facades that people present to the world. This is their real anguish and shame and chaos. And then if you back up a little bit, their courage in trying to face it and make sense of it once and for all. There is a truth about human life captured in these stories that is not a truth that most of us encounter in any kind of conscious way as we are bobbing about our everyday doings. A sense of reverence always seems to descend when I read these stories, like the hush of the reference hall at the library, with all the big, thick, important books that are there for you to pour over but not take home with you. Even if your therapy modality isn't something to do with direct trauma processing, it's likely that just by virtue of the intimacy and scope of therapeutic practice, if you've been in the field for really much of a length of time at all, you have seen something significant through this lens on the difficult reality of human experience, of human suffering. And I want to be clear, too, that I am not implying therapists have cornered the market on this unvarnished lens. After all, therapy as something resembling what we know it as now has only existed, generously I'll give it, 150 years or so. And obviously an array of people have been observing all this complexity and ugliness about the kaleidoscope of human existence long before 150 years ago. And even now, today in contemporary society, we are not alone and unique in having this back door, back alley view. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say, of course, other healthcare workers, medical workers, people who do child and elder care, 911 dispatchers, sex workers, members of clergy, police officers, whatever you may think about that line of work. All of those are professions whose members really share that with us, I think, share that experience of intimate contact with other people's pain and vulnerability. Even if we both between those professions and within those professions make sense of the pain and vulnerability we see and engage with it in very different ways. What does all this have to do with moral injury? Well, I'm going to refer back now to one of the definitions of moral injury I quoted last episode. A disruption in an individual's confidence and expectations about one's own or others motivation or capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner. Now, when taken on its own, that's a bit dry, it's a bit abstract. But when we put it in the context of those stories I was just talking about, that slice of the spectrum of the pain of human experiences, the pain that human beings cause to other human beings, that idea of one's understanding 
of people's motivation or capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner being disrupted feels a whole lot less abstract. Look, I didn't get into this line of work with a whole lot of really pervasively held illusions about the human social milieu being a fair place where people mostly make good choices and the miseries of the world being either acts of nature or the exceptional works of a few bad actors. I don't even buy into the utopian leftist version of that, where all the cruelty in the world is solely because of political and economic systems, and that individuals would revert to a state of overarching moral uprightness if the yoke of systemic oppression were suddenly removed. As much privilege as I have had, I haven't really lived a life that would have supported those kinds of illusions. And I think particularly as someone of ethnic Jewish ancestry who has really examined that side of my heritage, there's a lot of intergenerational wisdom born from trauma about the ever-shifting sands of social reality and what human beings are capable of that you might not expect them to be or hope they would be. I do not believe that people are truly good at heart. I believe that we are all profoundly mixed bags. And while we have goodness within us, we have everything else too. And that we are capable of heroism and atrocity and all the things in that vast, vast gray area in between. And I think I would have said something not too different from that when I entered this arena, when I started doing therapy. Man, but if you have any trace of illusion left about that stuff, any beliefs left hiding in some dark, heretofore unaccessed nook or cranny of your psyche about the world being a basically decent place, or fairness being a norm and injustice being an aberration, or people being just pretty much intrinsically good and not intrinsically all that other stuff too. And if you're an American, were raised in America and inhabit any kind of position of privilege at all, there's probably some place in which some remnants of these kinds of beliefs lurk inside you somewhere that you've yet to fully let go of. I know that I've discovered some of my own in spite of myself. And if you are still holding on to some of these kinds of illusions coming into this work, coming into the work of therapy and really showing up here will challenge those illusions. It will shake those illusions to their roots. And the more broadly and deeply and honestly you confront the kinds of human experience that you are confronted with in this work, the more those illusions will be challenged. You will be confronted with scenarios in which people are so clearly not motivated to behave in a just and ethical manner in which they are motivated by just the opposite. You will be confronted with scenarios in which you may be deeply disappointed by the capacity and willingness of the people involved to behave justly and ethically. And even before we bring ourselves into this picture as an agent, as an actor, right? Just the witnessing. If it's an up-close and honest witnessing, that alone creates the disruption. That creates the moral wound. This reckoning, what can be a terrifying, disgusting, sorrowful reckoning with the capacity of human beings to cause harm to one another in a way that causes moral affront. Now, usually when we talk about moral injury, we talk about it in terms of something that can and should be prevented in various ways. And I think there are absolutely sites of intervention there. And I think we should be talking about it that way. We should be looking for areas in which certain kinds of moral injury 
are preventable and where steps should very much be taken to prevent it on the systemic level. But I want to linger here for a moment at this place where this kind of moral injury, the moral wound that occurs at the site of an encounter with the immensity of human experience. I think that this kind of moral injury is not only an inevitable outcome of doing deep, honest work with human beings, but also potentially the site of great therapeutic and personal power and leverage. When I was writing this, I got the idea that there was some famous aphorism about the poison being the cure, but it turns out maybe that's just a Megadeth song. But as I was going down the Google rabbit hole trying to figure that out, I stumbled into this whole philosophical discourse about the ancient Greek word pharmakon. And I'm not going to pretend to understand most of that discourse because postmodern philosophy is really not my beat. But Essentially, what is relevant here is that this Greek word pharmakon, which, of course, you've probably noticed is the root of our modern English word pharmacy, means both poison and cure, which has presented a conundrum for translators over the years, apparently, because it isn't just that it means either one. It can mean both very much at the same time. And that's what I think is instructive about this concept when we apply it to the kind of moral injury that I'm describing here, the intrinsic disruption of our hopes for and expectations of human beings as moral agents that comes when we have this level of exposure to human suffering. It can and often does, I think, harm us and benefit us at the same time. It is a disruption, but it's a potentially generative one. It brings up deep existential questions about what it means to be a person and be a part of a society and about what's possible in those contexts. And let's be real, encountering deep existential questions is rarely pleasant. Meaningful, perhaps. Pleasant, no. And there is a possibility there that if we meet that encounter with some kind of honest reckoning, we can invite our clients to meet us there too that we can more courageously and competently accompany our clients as they walk through the wilderness of their own reckoning with their own versions of these types of existential questions. And, you know, to me, there is also something pretty clearly personally beneficial, ultimately, about having some of my illusions about life shattered. Like, Many middle to upper class white families who made good in that optimistic American era of the mid 20th century. Mine has really carried around and transmitted through the last few generations this core belief that if you make all the right choices, life won't be hard. And this encounter with the breadth of human experience I've had through the work of doing therapy has challenged that belief in a really important and freeing way that no, life is just hard. And maybe some of you out there have had experiences like this of having some adaptive but ultimately dysfunctional illusions challenged in the same way through the course of your work too. When I think about this kind of moral wound, though, and that sense of being the pharmacon, the poison and the cure at once, I think one of the barriers for us getting as much out of the cure part as perhaps we could is that sense of aloneness, right? That piece that Kay and I talked about, how the very nature of this work, the privacy and confidentiality that makes so much of what we do with our clients possible, 
can also push us in the direction of carrying so much of this kind of weight, mostly alone. And I think that harkens back to some of the stuff that we've been talking about in prior episodes as well. All these factors that contribute to our isolation, whether that's the intrinsically private nature of the work or the specter of the good therapist archetype looming over us and saying that we should be less affected than we are, or a culture of silence in our workplaces and all the contributing factors of capitalism and individualism. Well, what it amounts to is that wrestling with all of the moral and existential stuff about humanity that gets unearthed by doing this work with people mostly alone, that's pretty exhausting. And that's where this whole poison cure situation gets pretty out of balance. I'm going to now make the comparison between therapists and clergy again, which I know a lot of people really don't like for various reasons, religious baggage, whatever discomfort with the idea of having much in common with that role. But the reason I come back to it is I think it's the most apt comparison sort of historically, globally, the therapist's role in modern, industrial, Western, heavily secular society is probably the most analogous to the role various forms of clergy have played in many, many societies across time and place. Certainly the counseling and secret holding and healing and existential struggle aspects. And I think one of the things that is helpful about making this comparison is that, of course, most members of clergy and most traditions not only have the benefit of some kind of organized community of peers and mentors, but there's also an established tradition for making sense of some of the experiences of the role that is passed down through a lineage. And as I mentioned earlier, our profession is very young. And I know I'm always beating this drum that I'm a third generation therapist and I mention it in the next episode too, sorry, but it's notable for a reason. It's quite unusual. My grandparents' generation was really the one where therapy was gaining a foothold and becoming much more prevalent and understood as a thing by the general population. That's a short history. There is a lot of wisdom in that short history, I think, but we don't have a very systematized way of organizing that and passing that on. I don't think that's mostly what we're doing in grad school. I can think of, in my personal experience, a few classes, a few professors where I did feel that was happening, but I remember them both because they were so powerful, but also because they were exceptional. And like Rebecca Chang said a few episodes ago, we get degrees in CYA, certainly not in wisdom. And yes, if you have a great supervision relationship with a very experienced clinical supervisor, some of this wisdom is being passed down or if you happen to go to a really exceptional training. But other than that, what is there? Yes, books, Irvin Yalom's books, The Gift of Therapy, great book in this vein. But we don't have institutions that really support and provide conduits for the transmission of intergenerational wisdom about how we confront and hold the wounding that comes with this work. And that is why I actually feel pretty strongly about accepting the idea of this work as a calling for many of us, because I think that evokes a sense of responsibility for the sacredness of so much of what we are doing and encountering in this work, including the moral wounds that we incur in the course of it. 
There's that Jungian term that gets thrown around a lot in this field and adjacent fields, the idea of the wounded healer. Maybe you've heard it so many times that it's begun to seem a little hokey or meaningless. But I think we shouldn't let it turn into just a thought terminating cliche, because to examine what it actually means in a more comprehensive and honest way could be quite illuminating. What that phrase wounded healer is usually taken to mean, and I believe this is what Jung was mostly getting at, is this idea of the pre-existing wounds that we come into the work with and how those can be activated by the client and the healing relationship. And I certainly believe that is very important. But I also think we need to expand the understanding of this concept of wounded healer to include the recognition that we also are wounded by this work. And that some of those ways are intrinsic to the work and that we can find ways to alchemize those kinds of wounds into something generative and powerfully beneficial. And that some of the ways that we are wounded by this work are not intrinsic. They're a result of the particular systems that we are doing this work within. And that's the stuff we talked about quite a bit last time, like a profit-driven healthcare system and institutional inertia and having the very system that is causing people so much suffering, also placing the weight of the responsibility for that suffering disproportionately on us, and feeling the burden of being told, whether explicitly or implicitly, that we should be hiding the brokenness of the system from our clients and the public. It doesn't have to be that way, but right now it is. Right now it is. So if you come into this field, and you have some kind of deeply held positive value system, and you hang around for any length of time trying to do your damnedest to do good work, you are going to experience moral injury, both on the level that is intrinsic to the work and the level that is simply intrinsic to the systems we are working within right now. I think back on that story I left untold, the anecdote I didn't share, about the first time I experienced a really significant acute moral injury in the course of being a therapist. And by the lens I've been using here, that incident was very much not intrinsic to the work, but a result of the nature of our current healthcare system and mental healthcare system. And I was surprised when that experience came to mind for this episode by how much shame I still felt about that scenario I didn't describe. That sense of I should have stopped it or prevented it or done something or fixed it or said the right thing somehow. And in the last couple of weeks, as I've talked with some of you about how much my conversation with Kay resonated, I've really realized how many of us carry some version of this kind of shame. And if this many of us have experienced it and are willing to say so, how many therapists have experienced it and are afraid to talk about it? Years ago, I was at a training with my teacher, Dave Schnarch, on trauma processing, and he was talking about vicarious trauma. And I remember this moment very well of him standing up at the front of the room and looking out at us with his trademark penetrating stare and saying, if you do this work well, you will be traumatized. Long pause. And that's a whole other rabbit hole, right, that we will hopefully be getting into all of that related stuff on a future episode about vicarious trauma specifically. But what I'm remembering here from this particular anecdote is the sense of peace that washed over me when he said that. 
Finally, someone was saying something that I knew intuitively to be true about the inevitability of incurring wounds in the course of doing this work. Finally, someone was making space for me to see that experiencing, in this case, vicarious trauma in the course of my work didn't mean I was doing the work wrong. Maybe it meant I was doing it right, or maybe it meant that I was just doing it. So if you're like me and you have a memory, an encounter you carry shame about, some experience of moral injury in the course of this work that when you touch into it, you find shame or regret or something in that spectrum of feelings. What would it mean if, in spite of what shame tells you, the presence of that injury didn't mean that you were simply doing it wrong or weren't good enough somehow or could have completely avoided it if you took a different path or whatever you tell yourself in your dark regretful nights of the soul? What if it were just the case that every path through this work walks you through some version of that kind of experience? And what becomes possible when we share that knowing with each other? If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow A Therapist Can't Say That wherever you listen to podcasts. I know that some of you have been sharing the show with other therapists, and I appreciate that so much. If you do know a therapist who you think would resonate with what we're doing here, please let them know. You can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. If you'd like to share anything with me that these episodes have brought up for you, or if you want to tell me about your A Therapist Can't Say That moment, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm also specifically interested in hearing from other therapists who have family members who are therapists. So if that's you also, please get in touch. You can shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.